Hello everyone, welcome to the Human Potential Series Authentic Awakened Action, where we explore the possibilities for taking purposeful action amidst the challenges we face in an increasingly complex world. We talk with trailblazers and thought leaders walking the talk, inspiring change on our planet. I'm your host Pippa Hayes and I'm part of the Earthbeat Fano or family. Earthbeat is an annual festival that takes place in Aotearoa, New Zealand, with the kaupapa or purpose to create a platform for transformation and celebration that inspires and empowers new ways of living in this world. Sometimes called a midwife of the psyche, Toko Pa Turner is a Canadian teacher, international speaker, dream worker and author of the award-winning book Belonging remembering ourselves home. In addition to being an authority on dreams, her work focuses on restoring the feminine, reconciling paradox, elevating grief, and facilitating ritual. To begin our session, I'm going to share a short karakia, or traditional prayer from the Māori, the indigenous people of Aotearoa, New Zealand to bring us together and give intention to our kōrero or talk today. Tuie ki runga, tuie ki raro, tuie ki roto, tuie ki wao. Karongo te ao, karongo te po. Homie, huie, taekie. Unite above, unite below, unite without, unite within. Listen to the night, listen to the world. Now we come together as one. Earthbeat is an organisation that believes in the importance of human connection to place. So with these words, we want to honour the land of Aotearoa that Earthbeat was born on, Te Reo Māori, the language that evolved with this land and its indigenous people, and extend this honouring out to all parts of this earth that endlessly support our human existence and the caretakers or guardians of all those places. Thank you so much for joining us today, Tokopa. It's a real honour to have you here. Oh, my pleasure. So, firstly, I'd love to learn a little bit more about you and your story and how the thread of belonging has woven through your own life um, and what the grounds were that created the relevance of belonging in your work today. Mm, yeah, well... I mean, I think I had a somewhat unusual upbringing in that, um, and I tell quite a bit of my personal story in my book, Belonging, um, but the short, cold notes version of it is that I left home when I was very young. I was 14 years old, and I ended up living in the foster care system here in Canada, and um, really that point of transition was the end of my having any semblance of a family or guardianship and um, though I didn't really know it at the time because it was an initiatory period that lasted many years um, this was the event that turned me towards my dreams towards my inner guidance and would be the beginning of a lifelong apprenticeship to the inner life. So even though it was quite a tragic 
time in my life when I essentially became an orphan, though my parents were still alive in the world, but they had exiled me from the family. And so all of the steps that followed as a result, the normal sort of initiations that we go through as young people, whether that's you know, graduating high school or getting an education or, you know, getting proper health care or learning how to drive. All of those things didn't happen for me. And instead, I, I ended up working full time to support myself at the age of 16 and have been independent ever since. And so you can imagine, perhaps, that my whole life was really characterized by this feeling of being an outsider, not just in my family home, but culturally speaking as well, because I would watch all of the people who were my age continue to go through those initiations and often felt as if I was being left behind while everybody else got onto a boat going in the same direction. And so this was a wound for me, a profound wound. And over the course of my life, this wound unconsciously drove me towards certain ambitions that were, I say unconscious because they drove me into certain relationships, certain groups, certain goals that I thought if I could reach those things that I would finally have that sense of belonging that I was so deeply longing for. And it really wasn't until about seven or eight years ago that I decided to turn towards that wound, towards those uh, painful questions like, where are my people? Where am I necessary in the world? Where do I belong? To turn towards those questions and really take an inventory of not only my past and how it had shaped me, but um, in present time, how it was continuing to shape me. And so that was sort of the beginning of my journey was my own personal decision to turn towards, um, you know, my unbelonging and to, to ask, you know, what were the origins of my estrangement, of my exile, and what really is belonging? And is it something that I could ever achieve or create in my life? And so that began um, what would be about a five-year journey in writing this book on belonging, where I started to realize that this personal quandary that I had for my own life was actually not mine alone. And that as I began to speak to people around me, I started to realize that everyone I came into contact with had some degree of this wound of feeling like an outsider, of feeling exiled, of not belonging, and of longing for something that always felt out of reach. And so now my question became a much bigger question of sort of cultural proportions and ancestral proportions, asking how really 
did we become so alienated as a modern culture? I'm speaking in the overarching sense. Obviously, we have many different cultures within this um, mega culture. But in mega culture, in the over culture, there is this profound um, wound that characterizes so much our lives. And so that was really the basis of entering into the writing of the book, because as I started to hold these questions for myself and for the larger um, culture, I started to receive very powerful teachings through my dreams, especially, that were showing me that belonging wasn't actually a place outside of myself, outside of ourselves, that we, you know, most of us continually search for that place in vain for a whole lifetime, actually. But at the, but that belonging was really a skill. Belonging was, is a set of competencies that we in modern times have lost or forgotten. Mm, thank you for that beautiful entry and description of your work. Um, I wonder what the significance of this theme of belonging and unbelonging is for humans and what your reflections are around why it seems to play out for us. And especially, like you say, in modern times, is it a theme that harks back to the beginning of humanity or is it something that's grown through cultural norms and and deviations and conditionings. What are your thoughts around that? Yeah, I mean, I would say it is predominantly a modern phenomenon because when we look back to um, those indigenous cultures that are still intact, few as they may be and far between, um, that a sense of belonging is woven into everyday life um, for many of those cultures. And um, so I really see the wound, which is estrangement, as being operating and as the result of three different levels. One, of course, is the personal level. And so this is where we grow up in a family home, a family environment, usually a nuclear kind of a family, where the family itself has a kind of culture. And in that culture, there are certain values and attributes and qualities which are celebrated and aggrandized and prized in individuals. Whereas there is this whole other set of qualities which are devalued, mocked, or maybe worst of all, just unacknowledged. And so this begins, I think, the first estrangement is at the personal level, where we learn that if we want to maintain a place in belonging, which is our family, that it is best if we try to mold ourselves around those celebrated qualities. Now, if we have many of these other qualities which are actually devalued and um, rejected in our family or ignored, then eventually 
with enough practice, we become distanced from those qualities in ourselves. So you see, there's a kind of fissure, a kind of crack right at the center of the self where we are split off from the inheritance of who we are, of the totality of our nature at the level of our family culture. Then at the next level, there is the culture, the larger culture, the overarching culture. Um, and so now we have this kind of dominant culture, which um, spreads all over the globe. And that culture, by the same explanation, um, values certain qualities. And we'll we could just name a few, like extroversion and strength and power and beauty and whiteness and, um, you know, education and uh, um, rational thinking, right? Just to name a few. Whereas there are all these other qualities, let's say sensitivity, the feeling life, different kinds of languages that aren't English, that aren't words, um, dreaming, the intuitive life, magic, ritual, all of these things, nature, which are just devalued and disconnected from and, um, and so at the level of the culture, we have this profound separation between these two sets of things. And so that further distances us from those refugee aspects of the self. And there's usually a correlation between the two, right? The, what we see in a lot of family homes kind of mirrors the culture because, of course, the family was raised and embedded in that culture. And then, of course, the third level is the ancestral level. And this one is much more complex because we have all different kinds of intergenerational traumas and ancestral um, patterns which have been broken for lots of different people. And of course, in, in New Zealand, that's a profound issue for the indigenous folks of that land of origin. Uh, but the same is true here in Canada um, with our Indigenous and um, First Nations folks. And, um, and so it is true all over the world. So even Europeans, you know, can trace back their own ancestry by several generations and will find a moment where the, their people's people were separated from their land of origin, from their native ways and practices and languages and, and land. And, um, and so there is this um, huge problem of displacement that I don't think any of us have even really begun to reckon with at the level that we need to so I really think that <clears throat> the feeling of, <clears throat> excuse me, I really think that the feeling of not belonging that so many of us carry doesn't really begin with the self, but begins in these ancestral wounds that have yet to really be acknowledged and addressed. Mm, that's so interesting I, and I can really identify on all of those three layers of unbelonging in myself and see that in all the other humans in my life as well um, 
what I think is another interesting slant to that is often those later two levels are not acknowledged and it's all put on the self and we almost pathologize unbelonging as an illness or a sickness is it you know depression or anxiety but I really resonate with what you're saying and agree that there's something bigger going on something more at play that we often don't see or speak to and I know for my own journey starting to look beyond the beyond the first level and to the other two has been um, an incredibly deep and challenging and confronting journey but one of the most rewarding in terms of my own healing and growth and has led me to a sense of feeling more belonging when I've looked at when I've looked at those other two levels and I wonder because it's not an easy journey uh, especially in a culture a dominant culture that does put a lot of attention on the the pathology or the illness of the disconnection of self. I wonder if you have any thoughts on how we might be able to move to making or incorporating the other two levels in our everyday life because it's not a journey for the faint of heart, uh, especially if you're doing it on your own. Well, for me, the central practice of belonging is dream work. And um, this has really been the devotion of my lifetime. And um, even though I have been doing it for many decades, it was only when I started to make this exploration into the dimensionality of belonging that I realized that the work that I was doing with dreams was all about re-belonging myself to those exiled parts, whether those are the parts that are exiled in our culture or whether they are the ancestral displacements and diasporas um, and disconnections or whether they are, and perhaps one of the most profound wounds that I think we have to contend with is our disconnection from the rest of nature. And so it was in my, it is in my dreams that, and I think for most people, this is the place where the alienated self first appears. And so I almost see dream work and belonging as synonymous because when we are paying attention to our dreams, and when we can learn a little bit about the language of dreams, we see that there is this um, natural inclination, as in all of nature, in the dreams uh, for us to move towards a sense of wholeness, of, of connection and belonging. And so... There is always an edge that we're bravely working on. So the work is never complete. And of course, our attention can ebb and flow when it comes to paying attention to our dreams. But I, found, I find this to be an incredibly powerful way of being able to see in our own lives where we can begin the work. It makes it tangible. So instead of being a kind of um, indistinct mass of 
how do I begin this work? <clears throat> Every night we are given an image or a series of images, a set of symbols to live into relationship with. And, and then we see the fruits of that labor in the next dream and the next dream. So, um, so yeah, so this for me is my central practice, though um, in, in my book, Belonging, I outline what I think are about 15 different competencies for practicing at belonging um, that d- diversify out of just doing dream work. But that's one of the, um, the gateways that each of us has, a kind of private gateway back into kinship with mystery with uh, oneness Mm. and touching back on dreams which is obviously very central to your work and process in life it's a topic we don't necessarily learn about in school um, something I was certainly never taught for those who aren't familiar with tapping into the power of our dreams what is the function of our dreams in our lives firstly on a functional biological level, and then um, beyond this as well. How? What can we learn, or how can we tap into the lessons that our dreams are here to offer us? Right. Well, you know that's a big topic of conversation, <laughs> um, and so I, you know, I teach a number of courses where I go into depth about that question. The question is bigger than even. We realize, um, but let's say this: the simplest way to think about it is that dreams are nature, naturing through us, in the same way that a tree produces pine cones and um, a plant flowers. We dream, and um, it is not constrained by geography, by culture, by language, everybody dreams. And we dream in images, we dream in stories. So from a biological perspective, we need dreaming in order to survive. In fact, they've done studies where when people are deprived of dreams, they begin to actually go crazy because there is something essential about these stories, about these images that are keeping us alive and helping us to integrate the experiences we are having in day-to-day life but also the ones that haven't happened yet, and also teachings that come through the appendix of our entire species that are eternal, and um, but are transmitted through our dreams. So, um, so if we think of dreams as nature, naturing through us, then all that really is needed to be done is to relearn this mother tongue, this language of symbolic thinking. And it is, um, it is a big step and a small step. A, let's call it a tiny giant step because we have to make this small shift in thinking, which is moving from thinking literally to thinking symbolically. Um, but it's a very large step because the entirety of what we experience as a culture is based on literality and rationalism. So in that way, it's a kind of rewiring of our 
entire thinking to, first of all, value dreams as having anything to offer. And second of all, to then begin to think in images and learn how to pursue and follow those images like patterns, which um, the image that um, I really love is that of an, an acorn, that an acorn has this blueprint contained within it, which eventually will become the oak tree, but the entirety of the oak tree is contained within that acorn. And the same is true in our psyches, that there are these patterns describing the who we will become the who we are meant to be and we have to learn how to follow those patterns to not only come into alignment with our true nature but with the larger ecosystem in which our nature is embedded and so learning to think symbolically um, just takes a little bit of practice it can be really helped by just exposing yourself to your own dreams by uh, wondering at the symbols and beginning, you know, so often people have dreams about people and events that are happening to them in waking life. And they think, oh, this dream is just about that thing that happened yesterday. But I urge you to go a little bit deeper and think, but why did your dream choose that character? Why did your dream choose that image? And consider that it might have a symbolic dimension to it as well. And so learning how to think symbolically is an art form. And like learning any other language, it can take a lifetime to master, but it you can also have quite an intuitive facility with it if you are somebody who is um, used to um, working with images of um, maybe, you know, artists and um some body workers and um, people who are interested in somatic practices. So for some people, it comes quite naturally and other people have to fight a little bit with the rational mind, which wants to dismiss the dream and says, this doesn't make any sense. I, or I ate too much cheese before bed and that's why I'm having this dream. But actually these images are incredibly valuable. And if we want to grow more, nutritious images in our dreams we have to tend to the ones that we receive so it's quite unusual to have a culture that doesn't value dreams isn't it um it is. and and i'm curious how different cultures around the world uh, currently now do and historically have valued dreams in a different way than we treat them or mistreat them in in the mainstream culture of our times well you know there are thousands of cultures um that uh, for as long as history has been recorded have been using their dreams as central to tribal life um and 
this is um, the practices are as varied as those cultures and so it's not something that can be easily summed up um you know there are many cultures throughout Africa, and of course, you must know about the Australian First Nations uh, relationship to dreaming. And, um, you know, all over Native American traditions and Native Canadian traditions. So, I mean, it's, you know, in Siberia and all over. So some people might practice um, listening to their dreams as guidance for how to navigate day-to-day life. For instance, where, where, when is it time for a nomadic culture to move location? They might receive information from the dream, which says, oh, weather is coming, it's time to move. Or they might receive information about where to find edible berries or um, what a role for a newborn baby should be within the um, within the family culture or um, where the buffalo might be migrating at this time of year. So there, there is no end to the kinds of information, some of which is incredibly practical and some of which is quite mystical that we can receive through our dreams. And um, there are some people who have dedicated their lives to studying indigenous cultures, dreaming practices and written books about it. So it's, um, it's exciting to dive into that topic. And you're right, it's we are quite unusual in that um, in that we don't value dreams. In fact, the only place you can find in let's call it Western culture or you know modernity that values their dreams is in the psychological tradition. So in the work of Carl Jung and Sigmund Freud, they were really the first, you know, pioneers to say, hey, this is valuable stuff, let's pay attention to this. But even the psychological tradition has huge limitations placed on it because it is essentially a rationalistic container that wants to analyze and interpret dreams. So even there, you might find some some limitations to the uh, more mystical um, textures of dreaming. I had a conversation the other day with some friends leading up to our conversation. And one of them said, I would love to have time to think about my dreams, but I've just got to get up in the morning and I've got to get to the office after sorting the kids out. And it was quite symbolic of, uh, I thought, of this interface between our yearnings and our and maybe this innate sense to connect with something beyond ourselves, like our dreams. But having this container of Western culture holding us in a certain structure that maybe doesn't allow us to to value these things. And I wonder if you have any advice for people that are feeling um, maybe a little bit stuck in in those places and, and wanting to explore, but feeling quite limited by our systems and the way that they function in our lives. 
yeah, totally. And that's a real thing. You know, that is a real barrier to overcome. And as we were speaking about earlier, the um, denigration and devaluation of dreams is run so deep that um, even acknowledging that dreams have value is a huge hurdle for a lot of people. But even then, if you do get to the place where you recognize that your dreams are of value, how do you then begin to make a courtship of them, given the constraints that are placed on us by um, the demands of modern living. And the way that I see this is really about allegiance. That, you know, where we choose to place our allegiances really ultimately is a choice. It may be a passive choice, but it's a choice nonetheless. And so if we are placing all of our allegiances in the external world and its demands on us, then that that is a valid choice, but and it is a choice that you are making. Being able to, you know, elbow out some room for your spiritual practice for me is like it's like breathing. Like I would not be able to live in this world if I wasn't able to take time for myself to pay attention to my dreams, to um, find that center from which to relate to the rest of the world. Just like it is incredibly valuable for me to spend time every day in communion with nature, it's not something I'm willing to give up. And so I choose it again and again and again. And sometimes my allegiances drift to the outside world, and then I start to feel numb, depressed, anxious, uh, disconnected. And um, these are all telltale signs for me that it has gone too far and that I need to find a way, whatever it takes, to pull back those allegiances and place at least some of them back where they belong. Mm. We've had a few of these conversations recently and this podcast series is a lot about finding that balance between the internal work um, spiritual life and existence and then external action Um, and a lot of people have been voicing difficulty in finding that balance and a sense of guilt or shame that arises with so many external crises and pressures um, whether it's climate environment political racial um, gender equality you know the list goes on Um, so it's been it's been a real common theme of yeah how do we how do we shift this it's almost turning our way of thinking our way of being in the world and interacting completely on its head to a way that's more aligned with nature and what seems to be uh, the theme of indigenous thinking so just really have been tuning into how do we take that that shame and guilt away like within ourselves but also for each other and how important it feels like creating community as well externally where it's it's supported and encouraged to take part in these practices and not shamed and um, belittled and devalued. Um, I wonder if you have any reflections on this, how you see it playing out in your own life, um, how other people respond in this sense and what they're voicing that they need and how they're finding breakthroughs and movement um, in this 
in this place that we're all in and moving through together. Yeah, I think so many of us realize that we need a new consciousness, we need a new world, and we have to give birth to that world. But we can't do it with the same urgency that got us into this trouble in the first place. You see, if we move into action through anxiety, desperation, anger, and um, and fear, then the world that we create will have qualities of that imprinted in its vibratory signature. So, um, so I truly believe that the first line of acti- activism is at the level of the psyche. Because if we can't dethrone the inner tyrants that keep us from our purest expression, from our truest originality, from our most gorgeous visions for how the world can be, then we have no hope of being able to create or birth that world, even if it's just our little corner of it. Now, this isn't to say that we shouldn't also be taking physical action in the world and taking political positions and speaking out against injustice because we need to do that as well. But we have to start at the level of the self first. And this is the only way that we're going to be able to draw on those origins, that place from which true originality sources in order to make something new. And we, you know, and when we are doing this work, instead of judging ourselves as being navel gazing or um, not taking enough action or being lazy or whatever, the, the invalidations go deep, you know, you can just go on and on with that stuff. Instead of that, to remember that the work that we are doing at the level of the self is contributing to collective consciousness. It's contributing to the awakening of global consciousness, of Gaia consciousness. There's just no two ways about that. It's an as above, so below kind of situation, you know? The two are infinitely connected. And as you begin to explore your dreams and pay attention to your spiritual life, you'll see this again and again. It's like an example would be this book that I've written, you know? I, I entered into my personal problem of feeling that I don't belong. And I wrote this very difficult book out of that process. But then that book became a kind of um, um, wayfaring for so many others who had the same questions. And I never could have predicted that. In fact, I would have been surprised if it sold a hundred copies. You can ask my husband. I really just, you know, just had no idea that it would, you know, reach global readers around the world. But I think we all have this power, you know, to turn towards the personal. And that is what opens us up into the transpersonal. Thank you. 
I wanted to take the opportunity for a little share of a very interesting last 24 hours I've had. Um, it's been very busy and active and filled with packing and traveling and unpacking and work and humans and screens. And last night I finally sat down to um, write some notes and some questions for our interview today. Um, and not long after I began, I received news that a friend very dear to my heart had passed on. She'd been unwell for some time, um, but it was still a shock to hear of her passing, especially because she'd been in my thoughts and I meant to get in touch, but because, you know, the to-do list kept expanding, I'd sort of put it on the back burner. And the sense of the delicate nature of life... Um, and death engrossed me and all I wanted to do was sit with this sense and, and, and let it move through me but it was getting late and I felt like I needed to prepare more and um, be ready for today so that there was some kind of sensible conversation that could take place for this project that I'm involved with and the tension pulled for a little bit and then I had this beautiful realization of actually how perfect the timing was if I let it be um, and it didn't have to be either or. Um, it was interesting to watch my mind as much inner work as I think I like to think that I have done. <laughs> it was wanting to separate these two situations and, you know, have the, the work project and then the personal experience separate. And it really struck me then also tuning into your work, um, talking about all of this and, and exiled parts and orphan parts was like how I was almost stepping into doing that in this situation. And I had a choice um, whether I wanted to continue that pattern that feels like um, I have played out in my life, but also uh, collectively we play out, you know, particularly in this inner Western culture, grief is done behind closed doors and we keep it very separate from our, usually from our communal experience or interactions, especially in work or professional life. So I kind of had me wondering, like, what if, what if I could bring the two together and, um, and use your work as, as inspiration to move through that process and, and bring that into our conversation today. Um, so I wanted to just touch on that paradox that, as I said, seems to be quite a, an entrenched pattern in the way that we do things in our society, um, and it runs really deep. I wonder if you can talk more about these exiled and orphan parts and how we can start to bring them home or welcome them more into our experience and our existence so that we may come to some place where we are actually integrating all of these vast experiences of life rather than wanting to put them in various pockets and behind different doors and different rooms. Yeah, well, thank you so much for sharing that story with me. And I know, I'm sure all of your listeners can relate to being in very similar quandaries where we're pulled in these two different directions, which seem irreconcilable. And yet, you know, Rumi has this beautiful poem called The Guest House, 
where he talks about the self as a kind of guest house and that every day there's a new arrival on the doorstep wanting to be let in. And our habit is to see grief or anger or sorrow or anxiety and try to keep them out and to shut the door in their face. But, um, but Rumi says they always have a gift for us. Even if he says a crowd of sorrows uh, sweeps your house clean, it might be clearing the room for some new arrival, some new gift. Some new delight. Some new delight, thank you. And so I think this is the practice above all practices. And we do this a lot in dream work because it's the same. When you receive a difficult dream with imagery that is haunting or threatening or violent or repulsive or whatever it is, shameful, we want to put, you know, get it as far away from us as possible and to push it away at a great distance. But those are the dreams you should really write down. Those are the ones you should pay attention to and turn towards with even some small measure of curiosity because those are the dreams that have power contained within those images that may be freed up for some new delight, for some new creativity. And so I think we have a chance to practice this welcoming of the dark guests, of the difficult guests every single day. And um, I think we're in an auspicious time right now during this global pandemic where life is being altered as we know it. And there is this collapsing of outer and inner worlds. In a way, I think we have an opportunity here to see if we can live in simultaneity, if we can live with both the grief that is arising and the tasks that need to be done, if we can get our work done and meet our deadlines, but also pay attention to our dreams and listen to the intelligence of our feelings. And it's not easy work, you know, and I think a lot of us have a lot of uh, deep programming to unravel around the value of difficult or so-called negative emotions. Um, And uh, And also the pressure to be presentational, you know, to appear as if we belong, to appear as if we have it together. Uh, But actually, I think there's, it's really time to be able to talk about our vulnerabilities and to be able to share them in, you know, certain trustworthy relationships and to live more in accordance with the rhythms that are moving through our own bodies, because this is the rhythm of nature herself. And if we really want to live in relationship with nature, we have to start by listening to our bodies, listening to the communications of our feelings. I was thinking back to you talking about the three levels of um you know, that we work with in terms of unbelonging. And for me, acknowledging grief has been a huge part of each of those three levels. Um, And that 
has that actually led me into the intergenerational or the ancestral stuff it's like oh yeah there's there's things sitting there that haven't been allowed to be felt in my own lineage and and I'm here and I have the the space the capability the privilege to be able to actually move these unprocessed feelings and undigested matter through my system and give them some opportunity to potentially heal or find some resolution or a re-belonging. Um, you've talked in your work about your own um, movement into that collective or intergenerational um, trauma that's really helped you in your process. And I wondered if you would like to speak a little bit more to how that was relevant to your journey and, and how you see that necessity perhaps um, begging itself to be acknowledged in the external world at the moment. Mm -hmm. Well, I am the granddaughter of Holocaust survivors and everybody uh, who survived which were just really my grandparents and then my mother who survived um, the war had different ways of dealing with it. You know, my grandmother was someone who could talk about the past. My grandfather never spoke of it. And my mother never acknowledged it as being effective in, you know, affective in her life. And so... Um, but but I could see it obviously playing out in all of the wounds that each of them carried, but then also in my own life. And um, I saw that in my dreams first. I began to have dreams of the Holocaust, imagery of refugee camps, of uh, a ruling um, class, of Nazis, of all of this stuff came up in my dreams, including visitations from my long-deceased grandfather, who one day in a very powerful dream put his hand on my shoulder and he said, I'm sorry for having given you my eyesight. And it was a, it was a real encounter. It wasn't a, a narrative dream, and I could feel that qualitative dis difference. It was a, a visitation, and I wondered for a long time, you know, what did he mean by that? Because it was very specifically eyesight, and um, my grandmother told me a story of one day when they were trying to leave Poland, they had to make a very long walk um, through a provincial border, and the whole walk was strewn with corpses. And my, my grandmother told me the story of how my grandfather covered her eyes as they walked so that so that she wouldn't witness and be scarred by what she saw. And yet he had given me his eyesight somehow. And so there's something about that generational trauma that I inherited. And certainly I could see it, you know, any time I would read stories or you know, see films about the Holocaust, the grief was too much to bear, like more than any other grief. It was a thing that, you know, I just couldn't even begin to unpack the cruelty. Um, 
and suffering of my people. And so I knew in this process of writing about and asking about belonging that I needed to make a physical journey to the land of my ancestors and begin to trace my genealogy, which had been profoundly lost because everything was lost in the Holocaust. We had um, no names, no um, historical items. We had spent years building um, one of those family trees and um, the entire Jewish branch of my family was empty. It was like we had my grandparents and we had their parents or one set of their parents and that was it. And so I worked for about a year with collaborating with various genealogical organizations who were there to preserve Jewish history. Um, to reclaim some of the lost names of my family tree. And that led me to then going um, to follow in the footsteps of some of my ancestors who had been murdered in the um, in concentration camps. And um, I tell a bit of that story in the book. And uh, one of the great joys of this entire book was that I discovered there was a farmer in his 90s who knew some of my cousins. He knew my cousins when they were just, you know, when, when one of them was just 18 years old and he was the same age and they were great friends and they had been sent to work in um, concentration camps in the south of France. And, um, and then one day the Nazis came and they rounded them all up into the back of the truck and, you know, t- sent them to the gas chambers. And he witnessed all of that and he carried that grief of not being able to do anything or tell anyone or, you know, receive any kind of justice. And of course, he never saw them again. But I got to meet him you know, however many decades later, and he and I just wept the whole time because the ability to just share that memory with each other, that story um, was so healing. And um, some amazing miracles happened after that. A, a monument was erected to commemorate my family who had died in that village. And um, I ended up finding a living relative from that part, from that branch of my family tree. So, um, so I think just being able to trace this and repopulate my family tree and learn some of those stories has given me more of a, um, a fabric of connection to the momentum of my ancestors and all that has fallen to my life to see and to share and to tell. With so many of us that um, are the product of migration, with that displacement that's inherent um, in that that um, movement of globalization, um, do you think it's important that we do go back? Because I actually did the same. To be honest, that's an incredible story. Thank you for sharing that. I can feel the the power almost walking with you on those ancestral lands of yours. Um, I did something similar after my father passed. I felt a real sense of this disconnection and unbelonging and 
wanted to know where he had come from and where his family had come from. And we only, I only got back a few generations, maybe three or so, because a lot of the Irish records had been destroyed. But I did also go there and and stood on the land as far back as I could go, which I think might have been 1820 or something. So it's not very far, but stood in the church that my great um, grandparents would have been married in and felt a real sense, this is in Ireland, and felt a real sense of connection that I couldn't explain with that place that I'd only ever felt here at home um, in New Zealand, nowhere else around the world. And it was the sense that my bones had been here before, they were made of this place. There was something that sort of ignited in me. Um, And that was a real turning point for my own journey as well. Now, not a lot of people have the privilege to go back to their ancestral homelands and to connect with place in that way. Um, So, yeah, again, I wonder if you feel that that's necessary or if there are other ways to find those ancestral connections. Certainly, you know, I think you're right. I think it is a very privileged ability to be able to travel often halfway around the world to go and visit a place um, where your ancestors walked. And um, ideally, if you could do that, I, I would say absolutely and if you can't, there are many ways that don't involve going anywhere, <laughs> such as um, learning your ancestral language. That is a really powerful one because there's so much built into language. Um, learning your ancestral songs, that one may be even more powerful than language itself. Uh, because so much is carried in songs, teachings, and um, rhythms, and um, lilts, you know, that belong to our bones. And um, you could consider uh, creating an altar in your home where you begin to collect information, whether that is learning a handcraft that your people used to do or uh, finding a traditional piece of costume or clothing. Um, there are so many ways, I think, to connect with our ancestors, even if it's just learning about that historical period um, or that place and learning what it was like for those people. You could seek out films on the subject or read books about that, um, about the history. Um, but I really love the, the somatic practices, whether that's, you know, learning the dances or the songs or the recipes or the language. All of these things really can be so powerful when we put them into our own bodies that they bring about dreams and awarenesses and memories that we didn't even know we had. Mm, those are some really beautiful, juicy ideas. Thank you. Um, now... There's, just wondering how to phrase this question, (laughs) give me a moment. Um, A lot of us that have come from these migratory ancestral lineages, um, we might find that we connect with a local culture um, and that that gives us some sense of belonging. I know for 
my own journey connecting with um, Aotearoa's Māori culture has been a really important way for me to learn how to connect with the whenua or the land because these people lived in harmony with the land for hundreds of years and had and had and have incredible wisdom and knowledge about the rhythms and the patterns and the cycles of this place. But there's a a tenuousness or a, a slight tension with um, what I guess could be called cultural appropriation or, or stepping into cultures that are not your own. Um, and I wonder if you've been working with people that this has been coming up for, or I know in, in Canada with the First Nations people, um, there's a lot of discussion about this. And as, as white people, what is our place? Um, what's okay for us and what's not? Where is it okay for us to step into to find our connection and where is it best for us to to step back and, and give respect um, to those cultures to, you know, remain in their own um, integrity? I mean, that's a big question, you know. I think, um, I think you can step in where you are invited. And um, I think there is a distinction between appropriation and involvement, you know, um, appropriation often has to do with using something for your own commercial benefit, you know. Um, for instance, there's a, a, a really talented um, uh, Aboriginal um, beater who I purchased jewelry from because her creations are just so gorgeous. And I remember um, wondering, is it okay for me to wear this jewelry? And she told me, absolutely. We want to celebrate our culture. We want you to support the celebration of our culture. But if I were to take up beading and pass them off as my own, that would be a different story. You know, and the same is true, I think, of any spiritual objects and but I think if you're invited into say the Maori culture and you're being taught certain things about connecting with the land I think that can only be really valuable to help re-embed you in the place where you live and um, in in addition to sort of seeking out our and what has been lost for us ancestrally we also have to learn how to be where we are and um, in my experience when you apprentice say indigenous teachers um, that um, that you will be guided into what is appropriate and what is not appropriate and there will be inner circles that you're not allowed into. You know, there are protocols in place there to protect, uh, to protect culture. So I know it's a, it's a very tri tricky topic. And I appreciate um, that you and many other people are becoming increasingly respectful and sensitive to these issues. And I think there is a conversation taking place, which is really just you know, we're in the midst of it. And so there aren't, you know, clear cut answers to these questions. Um, but I think the fact that you're asking them already says a lot about how careful and respectful you want to be. Yeah, we, we had a conversation um, 
earlier in the series with a Australian Aboriginal Indigenous uh, author and an academic and he said you know there's going to be awkwardness it's going to be a little bit uncomfortable for a while but it's important that we start to talk about these topics and um, have them in the forefront of people's consciousness and we might slip up we might make mistakes that aren't culturally appropriate but we need to start somewhere yeah that's a good a good way to think about it. And then we just can get a lot better at, at um, you know, not spiraling into shame about it, but just kind of going, you know, taking ownership of the places where we do screw up and, and, and always aim to do better. Yeah, exactly. Um, I just wanted to, as we head towards the end of our conversation, your writing is so beautiful. I could just listen for, I have a belonging on audiobook and I could almost listen myself into dreamland. It really feels like it crosses those, the two worlds of, of living, waking life and sleep and dream. Um, so I just wanted to read a passage um, from the book. Following on this idea that there is symmetry between the inner and outer worlds, we might begin to see our global crisis as a collective initiation which each of us must reluctantly go through alone. As we explored, initiation has several different distinct phases. First, we become separated from false belonging, which is a kind of awakening. Then the wall is pulled from our eyes. Then we must wholeheartedly grieve the losses we have sustained in exile. And if we grieve well, we come back into conversation with our true values, listening for the call to act. If we rise to the challenge, we'll bring back the medicine we've retrieved from our descent and become contributing agents to global transformation. What sets us apart from all other species is that we have the free will to choose how to move across this frightening threshold. As evolutionary biologist Alan Cohen puts it, we must liberate the power of choice from unconsciousness. So I feel like that really beautifully sums up our entire conversation. We've touched on elements of that throughout um, our time together. I would love if you could talk a little bit more about how we can talk, contribute to global transformation and what this might look like. And the title of this podcast series is obviously Authentic Awakened Action. So as we've already touched on, coming from the inner world first, how would you talk to then finding that impulse or that um, draw towards action or towards back into the external world from a different or altered or transformed place? Well, you know, I am an ambassadress of the dream time. And so my emphasis is always going to be there. And um, somebody else will take it uh, and say, this is the kind of action you should take. But my job is to remind people to go inward first. And I will keep saying that again and again, because we can't skip over that that step where we are entering into this dialogue with the inner life, with the mystery, with the dreams. And 
in my experience, when we are doing this work, then the movement that we take in the outside world actually becomes much more confident. We become the kind of person who knows which way to go, right? So it's like a, a cooking process that we are cooked by those flames of exile and alienation and we move through grief and we come into that contact with, as you were reading, what we truly value, what is most meaningful for us, what our original medicine is to bring to the world. And we begin to bring it, you know, whether that looks like um, speaking publicly, whether that looks like writing, whether that looks like dancing, whether that looks like um uh, advocating for justice, whether that looks like painting or dancing. And there are just so many multitude of ways to bring your creativity into the world. And when you do that, um, you are contributing to what are many tiny steps in this global awakening. And every one of our steps is completely necessary. So that would be my advice, would be to encourage all of our listeners to turn inward first and to see what are the things that are inhibiting you from the full grandeur of your expression. And if you can dismantle those and then find the bravery to express yourself in whatever way is unique to you, then I think what we're doing is building this sort of invisible temple together, you know, where we can all lay down our grief and our forgetting and really praise that which is being born. Beautiful. <laughs> If, if people want to learn more about your work that you do and the dream school that you're um, part of um, providing to the world, where do they go? Yeah, so I have a website, which is tokopa.com, and it's just T-O-K-O-P-A, which is a Maori name. I don't know if you knew that. My parents gave me a Maori name of all of all things. Um, so tokopa.com, I mean, everything is really there, but you can also follow me on Instagram, um, where I post um, daily poetry and insights and things to inspire you and usually tend to update when something's happening like an event or a course i have a course called dream drops which anybody can take right away they sign up for and um it drops uh teachings around dreams for 30 days into your inbox and will take you deeper and deeper into relationship with your dreams. So if you're one of those people who's wanting to make that leap into a relationship with your dream life, um, you can sign up for dream jobs and that's on my website. So um, I'm also on Facebook and yeah, just find me and stay connected. <laughs> Beautiful, thank you. And I did mean to ask earlier about your name, actually. Do you want to give a little bit of the significance of Tokopa? Well, Tokopa in the Maori cosmology is the parent of the mist. So in the creation myth, um, the parent of the mist is um, the... the um, 
what do I want to say about that? Well, you know, for me, this didn't have a lot of significance because I don't have a relationship with the Maori people, although it is my dream to show up there one day and, and be, hi, my name is Tokopa. And somebody will be like, my name is Tokopa. <laughs> That's like my all time uh, dream. But, um, but uh, I have come to think of the parenting of the mist as the mist between the worlds, waking and dreaming. And um, I think it's a, it's a name I have slowly grown into, but it's big shoes to fill, isn't it? Yeah, it's so beautiful and really special to have that connection to here um, over the other side of the world. It would be beautiful to welcome you to these lands one day. And Oh, I would love that. I've always wanted to come there. And, you know, here where I live in British Columbia is very similar to New Zealand. And we actually have a lot of people going back and forth between the two places. <laughs> I've also been to BC and it's one of those very few places, like I mentioned before, Ireland is one, but there's something about BC too that really does feel like home. That makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for joining us today and offering your wisdom and sensitivity and insights about how we might be able to navigate these incredibly interesting times and tumultuous global terrain. Um, it's been a real pleasure and joy speaking with you. And you. Thank you for all your beautiful questions and for your depthful perspective. I appreciate you. Thank you. Is there anything that you'd like to leave us with today before we wrap up yes let me read you uh, a little prayer from the front of belonging this is my very dog-eared copy i have a lot of <laughs> crazy sticky notes and that's amazing the original copy we won't be able to see it on the podcast but um i'm really appreciating that's right the love that it's been through <laughs> i forgot that we were podcasting okay a little poem for our listeners a prayer for the rebels and the misfits, the black sheep and the outsiders, for the refugees, the orphans, the scapegoats and the weirdos, for the uprooted, the abandoned, the shunned and invisible ones. May you recognize with increasing vividness that you know what you know. May you give up your allegiances to self-doubt, meekness and hesitation. May you be willing to be unlikable and in the process be utterly loved. May you be impervious to the wrongful projections of others and may you deliver your disagreements with precision and grace. May you see with the consummate clarity of nature moving through you, that your voice is not only necessary, but desperately needed to sing us out of this muddle. May you feel shored up, supported, entwined, and reassured as you offer yourself and your gifts to the world. May you know for certain that even as you stand by yourself, you are not alone. This episode is in dedication to Tanya Richardson, a pillar of our festival community for decades in Aotearoa, New Zealand. A beautiful heart who danced this life with all her being until her final day, just before this podcast was recorded. Wise, kind, fun, deep, sometimes fierce, completely uniquely herself, and a mother to many. Mama T, 
thank you for the gift you were to us. Dance long, fly high, fly free. Thank you for your listening ears and beating hearts. For more info on the Human Potential series and the speakers we have lined up, visit earthbeatfestival.com. We appreciate your support, donations, reviews and feedback. Arahanui, much love. Kia te rangi marie, ki rungi i ngā iwi o te ao. Let peace reign on all.